this is Deacon Matt Newsom. I'm the Catholic Campus Minister at Western Carolina University, and this is episode five of our summer podcast series, uh, where we're looking at the different heresies that the church has had to deal with uh, throughout her, her history. Uh, so far, we've looked at Gnosticism, uh, we've looked at uh, Arianism, and uh, last week we looked at uh, Pelagianism, uh, the Pelagian heresy, which dealt a lot with the, the question of original sin and the need for, for grace. Uh, and Pelagianism that, that we talked about last, last time, uh, that was a heresy that, uh, that the church dealt with uh, largely in the 5th century, and its effects were felt mostly in the western part of the church and, and the western part of the Roman Empire. Um, but while that was going on in the west, uh, the eastern half of the church uh, and, and the Eastern Roman Empire um, wasn't just kind of hanging out, twiddling their thumbs. Um, they, uh, they had their own things uh, going on, and that's what we're going to be talking about uh, this week as we look at the uh, two heresies, actually, the heresies of Nestorianism and Monophysitism. Um, so, uh, go back uh, a couple of weeks when we talked about uh, the Arian heresy that, that dealt with the divinity of Christ, uh, right? And, uh, and in dealing with the Arian heresy, the church was able to uh, firmly establish our, our creedal faith that Jesus Christ is uh, one in, in being or of the same substance or consubstantial uh, with the Father, establishing Christ's uh, divinity. Uh, so that definitively settled the, the Arian issue, but that kind of opened up the door to a lot of other questions that were hotly debated, especially in the eastern part of the church uh, in the centuries following, especially in the fifth century, right? Um, so specifically, if Christ is, is, is human, as we, we believe him to be, and if he is divine, as we believe him to be, how do those two realities come together? Right? How, how does Jesus' divinity intersect with or interact with his, his humanity? How do we hold these two truths kind of in our, in our minds in, in a way that makes sense and in a way that's true, in a way that expresses the truth about the person of Jesus Christ and who he is, right? So, as I said, theologians thought a lot about this issue. They speculated a great deal about this issue. And one of the more prominent theologians in the East was, um, uh, was a man named Theodore of Mopsuistia. Uh, and he was uh, a theologian that had been trained at the school in Antioch. If you remember back on, in the episode that we, we talked about Arianism, we mentioned that there were two primary theological schools at the time, one in Antioch and one in Alexandria. So Theodore was trained in Antioch. And in his writings, um, he, he talked about the union of Christ's humanity and his divinity uh, like a marriage union. He, he talked about it as a, as a conjunction of the human and the divine, of these two things being, being brought together. And a lot of his and in a lot of his writing, he used very dualistic language, uh, talking about these two distinct realities that were, were being brought together in Christ or had been brought together in Christ. Um, so 
The problem, though, in speaking about Christ in, in an overly dualistic fashion is that it can create or, or lead us to believe that there is a, a separation within Christ, a separation within the second person of the Holy Trinity. Right? If, the, if the divine Son of God unites himself with a human person so that the two are just conjoined but not really one, right? If you just have two two persons that are united in, in one reality, then it becomes, you know, impossible to, to really say, for example, that God wept, right? As we know that Jesus wept when he heard about the death of his friend Lazarus. We could say, oh, that's just the human Jesus that, that experienced that emotion, that experienced grief and sadness and cried, right? That That's his humanity that's doing that. That's not that's not the divine Jesus. The divine Jesus wasn't wasn't involved in that. Or more importantly to our faith, it would be impossible for us to say that God died, right? Because God is is perfect. God is incorruptible. God is immutable. God is immortal. God can't die. So when we look at at Jesus on the cross, we would just say, well, that's Jesus's humanity dying on the cross. That's not his his divinity. And that that's extremely problematic for us as Christians because if God didn't really die on the cross, then there's no universal redemption, right? Because only the the sacrifice of uh, of an infinite God can fully redeem the sins of all mankind for all eternity. So we're only redeemed if it's God that died, not not a man, not even a perfect man, right? So Theodore didn't actually express you know those those views. He he was not a heretic. In in fact, he said in his writings that whatever you you can you say about Jesus the man and his humanity, you can also say of God. Um, so he didn't view his you know the separate any, any he didn't understand there to be any separation you know between uh, you know Jesus's humanity and and his divinity in that sense. But he left the church with this mode of speaking about Jesus in, in, in a dualistic way that people after him would, would pick up on and then uh, take to extremes that he, he never did himself. And, and that's what we see happening in the Nestorian heresy. So Nestorius, um, whom, whom the heresy is named after, um, he was a bishop. Um, but before, he was a priest and a monk uh, who had been trained uh, in theology at Antioch. Um, again, you know, remember that, that rivalry between the Antiochian school and the Alexandrian school that we, we talked about uh, in the episode on the Arian heresy, right? Because that, that becomes relevant again here in the Nestorian heresy as well, right? So Nestorius was a was a priest and a monk, and he had been trained uh, in in Antioch, and then later he becomes bishop of of Constantinople. In the year four twenty eight, he is uh, chosen as a bishop of Constantinople, which is the capital of the Roman Empire in the east. Um, and and once he's there, when he gets settled in as as bishop, he almost immediately and, and somewhat ironically uh, starts to fight heresy in, in his diocese. He has no 
no love of heresy, no tolerance for heresy. So he um, he finds an Arian chapel that's still there, and and he destroys it. Um, he persuades the emperor. Uh, he has influence over the emperor. He pers persuades the emperor to issue a decree against heretics in in the diocese. Um, he uh, he takes measures against Pelagianism. Uh, even though Pelagianism was a heresy that, that largely was affecting the western part of the church, there was a small enclave of Pelagians that uh, had made their way to Constantinople. Um, and Nestorius wasn't really familiar with, with their teachings and what they were doing, but when it was made known to him, he took measures to... Um, to, to um, uh, you know, to kind of put an end to the spread of Pelagianism in, in Constantinople. So, you know, he didn't have any tolerance for, for heresy, uh, uh, you know, initially. Um, but at the time in Constantinople, there was a controversy going on um, about a particular title of Our Lady. Um, specifically, whether or not it was appropriate to call Mary the Mother of God. Or in Greek, uh, they, they use the word theotokos, which literally translates as God-bearer, right? But in English, we usually just say mother of God. Uh, there was some controversy around this because some people uh, thought, well, that, that's going too far. If you say Mary is mother of God, that implies that she precedes God in some way or that she is involved in creating God in some way. And, and people naturally reacted against that. So is this proper to call Mary the Theotokos, the mother of God? Um, so Nestorius was bishop of the Diocese of Constantinople. Um, as I mentioned, he had been trained in theology at Antioch, and so he was familiar with the writings of Theodore of Mopsuestia, who had written about uh, Jesus, the, the identity of Jesus, using this dualistic language, drawing a distinction between Jesus' humanity and his, his divinity. And so kind of using that language, that, that dualistic theological language, that mode of thinking, um, uh, Nestorius said that, okay, Mary cannot be referred to as the mother of God. Uh, that, that would be uh, inaccurate. He argued that that would imply that if, if Mary was mother of God, that means that the divine nature would have been born and suffered and died. And since the divine is absolute and unchangeable, that's impossible. It's impossible for uh, the divine to go through a process of birth and suffering and death because that's, that's change. That's a process of change. So while, you know, Mary is the, the mother of Christ's human nature, and so you can call her the mother of Christ, you could call her the mother of Jesus, um, he said that it, you can't call her the mother of God because she's not the mother of his divine nature. So he draws a sharp distinction between Jesus' human nature and his, his divine nature, and, and so therefore you can't call Mary the mother of God. Um, and this argument may sound familiar to many of you listening because it's, it's more or less the same argument that many Protestants have against the Catholic devotion to Our Lady as Mother of God. They make these same points. Right? Um, so this is what Nestorius was, was teaching back, back in the 5th century. Okay, so this has great implications for our faith, right? If what he's saying is true here, if 
the divine nature can't really be born and suffer and die because it's absolute and unchangeable, well, what happened on the cross? Was that only, if only Jesus' humanity was born of the Virgin Mary, does that mean that only Jesus' humanity suffered for us and died for us on the cross? Does that mean that God didn't truly die for us? Because if that's true, if God didn't truly die on the cross, then as I said, we're not, we're not redeemed. So there's problems with, with Nestorius' teachings about, about this title. Um, so since Nestorius came from this Antiochian school and, and kind of as the Bishop of Constantinople, the Bishop of the, the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, arguably the most prominent um, uh, graduate of, of, of the Antiochian school, um, it's not surprising that it was an Alexandrian bishop, uh, the Bishop of Alexandria, who was you know, one of his loudest critics. And, and the Bishop of Alexandria at the time was St. Cyril. Uh, St. Cyril was, was Bishop of Alexandria from the, between the years 412 and 444. Um, and once he found out about what Nestorius was teaching about Mary as a Theotokos, he immediately wrote letters and sent them to the bishops uh, of Egypt and the, the monks of Egypt, the monastic houses of Egypt, strongly defending Mary as the Theotokos or as a God-bearer and saying that it is appropriate to revere Mary um, under this title of Mother of God. Now, as, as hopefully you're picking up already, this is not really a debate about Mariology. This is not an argument that, that Cyril and Nestorius were having about Marian devotion, Marian, um, uh, uh, Marian theology. Uh, this is a Christological argument, right? This has to do with how we understand and how we, we speak the truth about the identity of, of Jesus Christ. Because if Mary is the mother of Jesus Christ, and if Jesus Christ is God, is divine, then Mary is the mother of God. If you deny that Mary is the mother of God, then either she's not Jesus' mother, or Jesus is not God. But if she is the mother of Jesus, and Jesus is God, then you can call Mary the mother of God. Right? It's a Christological question. Now, if you denied that Jesus is God, then that's just a revival of the Arian heresy, which the church has already dealt with. They, they dealt with that in the Council of Nicaea. They dealt with it again in the Council of Constantinople. Um, so this is a, def a defined issue for the church. Jesus is God. And so St. Cyril rightly you know, drew the lines, connected the dots, that if Jesus is God and Mary is the mother of Jesus, that makes Mary the mother of God. Again, it's not about who Mary is, it's about who Jesus is. So this is a very important issue to St. Cyril and others in the church because it, it, it deals with the identity of Christ. So St. Cyril wrote, um, in addition to writing to all the, the Egyptian bishops and, and the Egyptian monastic houses, um, you know, uh, Alexandria is, is in Egypt, um, and uh, Cyril also wrote to Nestorius himself. He, he wrote to Constantinople, he wrote to Bishop Nestorius, and he asked, 
Nestorius to clarify what exactly do you teach regarding Christ and the Blessed Mother. Nestorius, in his response to Cyril, um, basically said, mind your own business. Um, he, he didn't feel the need to defend himself to, to Cyril, the Bishop of Alexandria. Um, both Nestorius and Cyril um, wrote letters petitioning to the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, uh, Pope Celestine, um, you know, asking him to, to intercede on this issue. They both wrote letters explaining their, their views. So Pope Celestine reviewed both of these cases, and he decided that Nestorius was in error. Uh, Nestorius was wrong. And he commanded Nestorius, as the Bishop of Constantinople, to publicly affirm in his diocese Mary's title of Theotokos, that this is a legitimate title under which to, we could revere and honor Our Lady because it expressed the truth about Christ as God. And so he publicly, uh, or he, he commanded uh, Nestorius to publicly affirm that. Um, in the same, this was in the year 430 AD. Uh, in the same year, 430, um, the emperor, uh, Theod uh, the emperor of the East, uh, Constantinople, uh, Theodosius II, asked the bishops, called the bishops, to meet in an ecumenical council at Ephesus, uh, because he also was interested in in resolving this conflict before it got worse. Um, he had a stake in in this because Nestorius was his bishop, right? He was the bishop of the capital city, Constantinople. And so if Nestorius was involved in, in a controversy, that, that didn't look good for the capital city. It didn't look good for the empire. So he had a vested interest in getting this controversy kind of taken care of. Uh, so for him, it was more of a political uh, thing than it was a, a theological matter. Um, so the, the Pope didn't attend this council himself, but he appointed uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria as the papal vicar to the council. Um, remember at this time it was not uncommon for, for popes to, to um, not attend these ecumenical councils, but they would send legates, they would send representatives. So St. Cyril was the papal legate to the council of Ephesus. And St. Cyril opened the council on June 22nd in the year 431. Now, at this time, Nestorius refused to attend the council. He himself did not appear because of the, the number of bishops that had gathered there. there you know, it was a small number at the time, um, and they were all sympathetic to St. Cyril. Um, Nestorius did not have a lot of bishops that he, he knew to be sympathetic to his way of thinking present, and so he refused to attend. So during this first session of the Council of Ephesus, um, the bishops there all very easily confirmed the Pope's judgment against Nestorius. Um, a little bit later on, more bishops arrived, and, and these bishops were more sympathetic to Nestorius, and so they convoked their own meeting um, on their own, and they voted to depose uh, Cyril. And so you had these, these two different gatherings of, of bishops kind of representing different sides and voting to kind of, you know, against the other one. So at this point, the emperor stepped in, and he declared the decisions of both of those council sessions null and void. Uh, he, uh, uh, he, he basically called a do-over. Um, a few days later, more papal legates arrived from Rome, 
and the, the group of bishops who had met the first time under the leadership of St. Cyril, um, they again met and they once more affirmed um, Rome's condemnation of, of the teachings of Nestorius. Um, Nestorius and his followers didn't really accept those decrees. Um, they, they didn't accept them any more than they had accepted the decrees of that, the first council session. Um, so it, it didn't really resolve the issue. And, and so the emperor uh, sent his own legates into the council and they declared on behalf of the emperor uh, both Cyril and Nestorius to be deposed. Uh, so it's it's clear at this time that, that the emperor just kind of wanted the, the major players out of the picture, so to speak. Um, he, he was thinking that if he could remove these two chief antagonists from... Uh, uh, you know, from the debate, that maybe someone could step forward and bring some peace, you know, to the church. Uh, again, think back to the century before when they were dealing with the Arian heresy that, that just about tore the church in half. Um, no one wanted to see a return to that. So St. Cyril left Ephesus at this point um, before things could get any worse for him. Um, Nestorius didn't leave uh, Ephesus, and things did get worse for him. Um, the emperor, um, who understandably had a lot of control over the Diocese of Constantinople, that being his capital city, um, he arranged to have Nestorius removed as bishop, and he put in place a successor. Um, Nestorius uh, stepped down, he returned to monastic life in Antioch, uh, and he eventually retired uh, to the desert in Libya. So the Council of Ephesus ended effectively without a reconciliation between the two sides. Um, as far as uh, you know, the council itself went, it declared firmly against Nestorius, but the debate itself continued. Um, as I said, even though Nestorius was out of the picture by, by now, he kind of went into retirement um, in, uh, in, in the desert. Um, his side, his argument, was taken up by um, an, another man named John, who was Bishop of Antioch. So now you have Cyril of Alexandria on one side, you have John of Antioch on the other side. So this became kind of a debate between these two, two great theological schools, Alexandria and Antioch. So they exchanged letters, they wrote back and forth. And they actually managed to reach an agreement in the year 433. In this agreement, um, John accepted the, uh, the papal condemnation of Nestorius and his teachings. Um, Cyril accepted um, a, uh, a creedal statement, a formulation of a creed that um, was drafted at Antioch uh, that expressed the union of the two natures in Christ without confusion. In other words, uh, his humanity was not diminished by his divinity. His divinity was not diminished by his humanity. They both remained intact without confusion. Um, the Council of Ephesus um, had est definitively established that it was proper for Mary to be called the Theotokos, or the Mother of God. Um, the, the bishops there at Ephesus also declared that it was proper to say that God suffered and that God died. In other words... Anything that happened to Christ's humanity also happened to the divine second person of the Holy Trinity because you can't separate the, the, the two natures of the one, one person. So that effectively settled the Nestorian issue, right? 
um, it declared that, that what Nestorius was teaching, that there were two persons in Christ, there was a human person and the divine person kind of conjoined, that that was a heresy. Um, so in that sense, it was a step towards a, a greater understanding of who is Christ, right? It was a definitive statement that, no, Jesus Christ is the second person of the Holy Trinity, one person who has both a divine nature and a human nature. But it didn't answer the question, how? How is this so? What is the, the relationship between that human nature and divine nature in that one person of, of Christ? There are still some nuances that need to be kind of drawn out of that for us to, to understand. And so the same issue arose again, um, or a similar issue arose again, uh, not long thereafter in the year 446, um, with the, the teachings of a man named Eutyches. Uh, Eutyches was, um, was an elderly abbot uh, of, a, of a monastery uh, outside of Constantinople. Um, he was not um, especially learned, um, he, but he was well-respected. He had about 300 monks under his rule, um, greatly respected by the clergy in the area. So he was an influential uh, man of the church. And, you know, more, more importantly, um, you know, as we'll see, he was also the godfather of a eunuch uh, named uh, Chrysaphius, who was an advisor to the emperor Theodosius II. So he had a connection to the imperial family, the imperial court. Um, so that's Eutyches. Eutyches was um, uh, a great uh, opponent of Nestorianism. So he had, uh, you know, preached against this this Nestorian heresy, uh, defender of orthodoxy. Uh, he had uh, denounced Nestorianism during that controversy. Uh, so so far so good, right? Um, well, in the year 444, a couple of years before um, Eutyches kind of brought this, this controversy back up again, St. Cyril had died, and there was a successor in Alexandria, a new bishop, and this new bishop managed to kind of stir up hostility again between Alexandria and between Antioch. Um, remember that, that Cyril and John of Antioch had kind of come to this agreement in, in the year 433. So this is now the year 444. There's a new new bishop there in, in Alexandria, and he's bringing back up the, these old, old hostilities. Um, and so a lot of people, including Eutyches, began to fear that, you know, this Nestorian uh, heresy was going to resurface again with this renewed antagonism between Alexandria and Antioch. And so Eutyches started to, to preach and, and, you know, uh, and write very vehemently against Nestorianism and maybe a little bit too enthusiastically because you know, there wasn't really evidence for an Historian revival, you know, at this point. He was trying to be proactive, and that involved him accusing a lot of people within the church of Nestorian sympathies um, without just cause. 
and that that got the abbot Eutyches embroiled in controversy. And in his zeal to try and defend the teachings of St. Cyril, Eutyches actually went much farther than Cyril did in, in reacting against the Nestorian uh, error. Um, and so to make a long controversy short, um, Eutyches ended up rejecting the agreement that Cyril and John had made in the year 433. Um, he, he, he rejected that, that statement. And he professed that, that Christ ultimately only had one nature, the divine nature. That yes, Christ was human, right? That's a teaching of the church. But the way that Eutyches understood it, um, his humanity was, was completely absorbed by his divinity. Um, you know, and he claimed that this is what St. Cyril was, was teaching. It, it was not. Uh, like I said, it, it goes much farther than Cyril ever did. But this, is, this was the claim, that, that Jesus is human and Jesus is God, but his humanity um, is totally absorbed by, by his divinity. And so he and his followers came to be called monophysites which is from the Greek word for one nature. Mono meaning one, physite meaning, meaning nature. So that Jesus really just had the one nature, the divine nature. Um, and because of Eutyches' prominence among the clergy uh, around Constantinople, as I said, he was well-respected. He had 300 monks under his, under his rule. Um, and because of his connection to the imperial household, um, Eutyches' monophysite views uh, quickly spread throughout the region. Uh, in the year 448, a synod was held uh, in Constantinople, a, a local gathering of bishops, um, during which Eutyches was confronted by uh, a bishop named Eusebius um, of Dorylaeum. Um, Eusebius um, uh, had also been an opponent of Nestorians, um, but he was one of these bishops now that Eutyches was accusing of being sympathetic to Nestorianism. Um, and, and Eutyches was asked at this synod, you know, point blank, can you affirm the two natures of Christ? And he refused. He refused to do this. And so he was deposed as abbot of his monastery. Uh, he was even forbidden to exercise his priestly office. Uh, and his teachings of, of monophysitism, that Christ only had one nature, were condemned um, in this local synod in Constantinople. But it's now that, that Eutyches starts to, to kind of uh, call in the favors, right? And he starts to use his influence with the royal family. Um, he, he makes an appeal through his godson, um, the, the eunuch that was the advisor to the emperor. He makes an appeal through him to the emperor to call an ecumenical council of the church, right? His teachings had been uh, condemned by a local synod. He had had his ministerial faculties um, removed, um, and so he appealed to a higher authority or an ecumenical council, kind of for vindication. And so the emperor did that. He he called a council uh, that was to uh, to meet in Ephesus uh, in August of the year 449. Um, but this council doesn't show up on uh, the lists of ecumenical councils of the church, and we'll see why in, in just a minute, right? Um, even from the beginning when it was called, it was not called in an ordinary way. Any bishop who was known to support Eutyches 
was invited to this council. But any bishop that was known to oppose Eutyches was specifically not invited to the council. Now, the Pope himself, the Bishop of Rome, was invited to attend, as would be necessary for the convocation of a valid council. Um, and, uh, you know, as I, I mentioned before, the popes in these days rarely attended the councils themselves. And so the Pope, Leo the Great, uh, was a pope at the time. Um, he did not attend, but he sent representatives. He sent papal legates with a letter that he wrote. And that letter is, is called the, the Tome of St. Leo. Um, you can read it online. I'll, I'll post a link on the website to the full text. So I'll just quote from one section here to kind of give you a sense of, of what Pope Leo said about this, this monophysite uh, controversy, about whether or not Christ has you know, two natures, human and divine, or just one divine nature that kind of subsumes the, the human. So Pope Leo wrote, quote, while preserving, therefore, the quality proper to each nature and joining both in one person, lowliness was taken on by majesty, weakness by strength, and mortality by eternity. And in order to pay the debt of our condition, an inviolable nature was united to a nature capable of suffering, so that this being the kind of reparation we needed one and the same mediator of God and men, the man Christ Jesus, was able to die in one nature and not in the other. In the whole and perfect nature of true man, therefore, the true God was born, complete in what pertains to his own nature and complete in what pertains to ours. But by what pertains to ours, we mean that which the Creator formed in His at the beginning, and that which He took upon Himself in order to redeem it. End quote. So the letter clearly expresses the, the, the position of Pope Leo um, regarding this Christological problem, namely that in Christ there are two natures in one person. But the papal legates were never allowed to read that letter. In fact, they didn't have any say in the council at all. Uh, Eutyches, on the other hand, was allowed to give a very biased, one-sided report of the, the synod in Constantinople that had deposed him. No opposing statements were put forth, so the deck was, was basically stacked in his favor. Um, there were 140 bishops present. 113 of them voted to affirm Eutyches uh, as an orthodox teacher in the church and to condemn all those who opposed him. So this council, as I said, doesn't show up on the list of recognized ecumenical councils, right? It's not considered a true ecumenical council by the church because the, the bishops there refuse to acknowledge the representatives of the Holy Father. Uh, in fact, when Pope Leo heard what had happened, he famously remarked that the bishops had not engaged in a, judici a, a, a judicium right, or a judgment, but they engaged in a latrocinum or a robbery. And so history has given this name, given this council the name of the, the robber council of Ephesus. So you'll see it referred to uh, that way sometimes, the robber council or the robber council of Ephesus. So, 
despite the fact that that we, in, in, in from the point of view of history, don't consider this a valid council by the church, nevertheless it happened, and its decrees were put into effect by the authority of the emperor. So all of those bishops that had opposed Eutyches were banished uh, from their diocesan sees, um, escorted out by imperial troops. Um, many of those bishops, including the bishop of Constantinople himself, made an appeal to Rome, and Pope Leo condemned these actions um, in a synod that he held in Rome, and he asked the emperor to call another council, um, but the emperor refused, and so the pope kind of had his hands tied. Um, you may be wondering, like, why would the pope, you know, who's head of the church, need the approval of, of, of the emperor to call an ecumenical council? But remember, at this point in time, you know, the, the emperors um, understood their role in the empire still much the same way as the old pagan emperors did, as the religious head of state. Um, all of these early councils had been called you know, by the emperor uh, and took place with the permission of the emperor. Uh, and also at this time, Christendom was, was more or less synonymous with the Roman Empire. Right? The borders of the church and the borders of the empire were coterminal. Uh, yeah, they, we did have missionaries that were going out and spreading the faith to, to lands outside of the imperial borders. But we're talking still about small, outlying, little communities. We're not talking about great, large dioceses, you know, within the church. Uh, and so, for all intents and purposes, Christendom was the Roman Empire. So, just to put it simply, any kind of large-scale universal meeting of the, the church, uh, the bishops of the church, just logistically could not happen without imperial approval. So you needed the emperor's um, uh, thumbs up, so to speak, to have that kind of an ecumenical council. So the pope asked for you know, the emperor to do that, the emperor refused. But in the following year, the year 450, so we're in the middle of the 5th century, the emperor died. Um, Theodosius II died. His sister inherited the throne, and shortly thereafter she married um, a man named Marcion. He became the new emperor, and their attitudes um, towards, towards Eutyches um, were, were a bit different. Um, the new powers that be allowed all of the bishops that had been exiled by the robber council of Ephesus to return, um, and they allowed for a new council to be called. The Pope agreed to this new council under the condition that his legates would preside over the council and that the letter he had written would be read. 350 bishops came together at the Council of Chalcedon in October of the year 451. At the time, that was the largest ever gathering of bishops in the history of the church. Most of the bishops who had participated in the robber council were there, and they asked for pardon. The bishops there overwhelmingly voted to affirm the Nicene Creed that we talked about regarding the Arian heresy, um, the agreement between John of Antioch and Cyril of Alexandria that was reached in 433, and the, the Tome of St. Leo, the, the letter of St. Leo, uh, they voted to affirm these three things, the Nicene Creed, the Agreement of John and Cyril, and the Tome of St. Leo, as true and adequate expressions of the Catholic faith. 
Um, and in fact, it's at this council that the bishops famously proclaimed, Peter has spoken through Leo, referring to Leo's letter, right? So this is a great affirmation of the bishops, of the, the Petrine ministry of the Bishop of Rome, that the Bishop of Rome, as the successor of St. Peter, shares in St. Peter's ministry and role in the church as the one who strengthens the brethren, right? The one whose faith will not fail, uh, the one to whom Christ has given the keys, uh, right? Peter has spoken through Leo. Um, in fact, the bishops um, thought that these statements of faith, in, including the, the letter of St. Leo, were so adequate that they didn't want to um, issue any new statement of faith at, at the Council of Chalcedon. Um, but the emperor insisted, um, just for reasons of clarification, uh, that we need to clarify this, this monophysite issue. And so the bishops approved um, the following statement, and, and I'll read it obviously in English translation, but uh, they approved the, a statement that said the following. Hence we follow the Holy Fathers and unanimously teach that the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is one and the same. The one and the same is perfect in his divinity and perfect in his humanity, true God and true man, consisting of a rational soul and body. The one and the same is equal in substance to the Father in his divinity and equal in substance to us in his humanity. He became like us in all things except sin. He was begotten of the Father before all time in his divinity. In the latest epoch, however, the same was born for us and for our salvation of Mary, the Virgin and Mother of God in his humanity. We confess one and the same Christ, the Son and Lord, the only begotten, who exists in two natures, without admixture, without change, without division, without separation. The difference of natures was never annulled through the union. Rather, the special property of each nature is preserved as the two come together into one person, or hypostasis. We confess not one separated and mutilated into two persons, but one and the same only begotten Son, the divine Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. So that's the proclamation of the Council of Chalcedon in the year 451. And here we have the Catholic Church definitively formulating our faith in Jesus Christ, Son of Man, Son of God, one person with two natures, fully human and fully divine, or what we call the hypostatic union, right? The hypostatic union, that union of personhood. There is one divine person, Jesus Christ, who possesses both a full human nature and a full divine nature, and neither one is lessened or, or, or changed or um, harmed in any way by the other. Okay. But that definition given to us by Chalcedon does not mean that the monophysite uh, heresy was dead. Again, if you're learning anything from listening to these podcasts, you know that these heretical ideas linger long after the church has definitively settled the issue. Um, it remained especially strong in Egypt, 
um, Egypt um, was predominantly monophysite, as a matter of fact. And there are different ways that that, that monophysitism, this idea that Christ only had one nature, um, would be expressed. To some, it meant that Jesus' human nature remained, so, so technically he had a human nature. They were willing to admit that he had a human nature. But they said that his human nature was like a drop of water in the ocean compared to his divine nature. In other words, yeah, it's technically there, but it's it's more or less completely consumed by it. It's it's ineffectual. It doesn't have any role to play in in the will or the mind of Jesus. Um, there was another group of monophysites, and they believed that Jesus's divine nature so completely overwhelmed his human nature that Christ didn't have a human body that you could no longer say that he had a human body. It just it was overwhelmed by the divine. And so the apostles must have therefore only seen a phantom or seen a spirit. Um, or there were other monophysites that believed that Jesus' human body was made incorruptible by his divine nature so that it couldn't suffer in any way. Um, but either way, whether he had no body or he had an incorruptible body, the sacrifice on the cross would have been impossible, right? Either he had no body to sacrifice or he had a body incapable of, of knowing suffering and pain and, and, and death and therefore being sacrificed. So the monophysite heresy lived on in various ways. Um, they, they continued their, their teachings, even though an ecumenical council had, had definitively declared against them, even though a pope had definitively declared um, against them. Uh, we may wonder today why they would, would do such a thing, um, but the ones who were teaching monophysitism uh, didn't necessarily look on those things as, um, you know, as definitive. Uh, the robber council had been overturned, uh, so why, why couldn't the council of Chalcedon maybe be overturned? Um, as far as the decree of the Pope, um, a lot of the, the bishops in the East um, didn't really care much what the Pope had to say. They, they looked at it as a, a Roman bishop, a Western bishop, interfering with, with their business uh, of, of teaching, teaching theology and, and practicing the faith in the East. And so they kind of resented his involvement in their, their affairs. So if they don't recognize the authority of the Pope, they don't recognize the authority of the Council, the Monophysites just you know, continue teaching what they wanted to teach uh, for, for quite some time. And so the Church and, and the Empire would both struggle against the Monophysitism for centuries uh, later. Uh, we can't go into too much detail you know, about it, but just to give you an idea of how long it lasted, there was a fifth ecumenical council, uh, the Council of Constantinople, that was held you know, 100 years later. Uh, it was held in the year 553, still dealing with the monophysites. Um, and that council would, would reaffirm the validity of the Council of Chalcedon um, and, and that council's affirmation of the two natures in one person of, of Jesus Christ. Um, in the seventh century, uh, you know, a hundred years after that, uh, Muslim forces um, invaded the eastern parts of the empire. Uh, and a lot of the, the areas that were conquered by, by Islam, uh, like Syria, Palestine, and Egypt, uh, these were the, the areas in the church where monophysitism was the strongest. Um, and so effectively kind of cut off from the rest of the church because of Muslim rule, 
um, these these churches were allowed to kind of persist in their monophysite teachings for for quite some time. Um, some still exist, you know, in Syria even today, um, and and there are still Nestorians today um, as well, um, because some of the missionaries that were sent into the Far East uh, in in the fifth century. Um, taught a Nestorian version of Christianity. And so a lot of the churches in the Far East that that trace their origins back to this time have historically um, believed uh, a Nestorian theology, uh, the teaching that there are two persons, um, you know, in, in Christ. So so both of these errors, the Nestorian teaching that, that Christ is, is two persons, uh, and, and the monophysite teaching that, that Christ only has one nature, um, these aren't teachings that are found in history books uh, or or just in kind of far away, isolated regions of the church. These are still teachings that can be found today. Or I won't say teachings, but, but misunderstandings that can be found today in in the church. Um, you know, they're not just in various different Protestant groups that may teach, you know, something similar to these things, but, but also in the Catholic church. Um, you know, again, I'm not talking about the teaching of the church because that's clear, but I'm talking about just average everyday Catholics that, that maybe just have never taken the time to learn about uh, the Christological teaching of the church and, and the history of these Christological issues, right? And so consequently, they don't really have a developed, a well-developed understanding of who Christ is. So look around, you know, look around your church next time you're at Mass. The person sitting in the pew behind you you know, maybe when he thinks about Christ um, and, and when he confesses in his heart that Christ is fully human and fully divine, um, the way that he understands that maybe is that he's a human person and he's a divine person that somehow coexist together, right? Well, that's Nestorianism. But he might not put a name on that <laughs> because he's never heard it called that before and he hasn't had it explained. Um, you know, maybe the, the, the youth minister at your local parish, um, you know, would agree with, with Eutyches that Christ's divine nature is just so great that it completely overwhelms his human nature. And his human nature is, is like a drop of water in the ocean and, and completely over, uh, overwhelmed, right? Completely irrelevant in terms of Christ's will and, and intellect. That that was just divine, Right? It, so effectively, they're a monophysite, even though they might not know that word. Okay? Um, or, you know, we find, you know, it's very, very common for, for Protestants to accuse Catholics of, of going too far when we revere Mary as the mother of God, because they have the same misunderstanding that Nestorius did um, about what we mean by that title, and they fail to see the significance that that title, Mother of God, has about what we believe about the person of Jesus Christ, that he's a divine person, right? So these errors still exist in the church today. And maybe you yourself have, have misunderstood something about the nature of Jesus in one of these directions. Um, you know, it's not uncommon when I'm talking about Nestorianism or Monophysitism for, for people who have been Catholic their whole life to say, well, wait a minute, that's what I've always believed. Uh, wait a minute, that's how I've always understood Jesus or thought about Jesus, right? So these ideas aren't dead. Um, but the lessons of the past here have a lot to, to teach us about, about our faith uh, because we're dealing with this fundamental question 
of our Catholic identity. Who is Jesus Christ? It's what our faith is all about. Uh, and it's important that these lessons not be forgotten. So I'm hoping that by going back and looking at um, the historical circumstances uh, under which these questions were first raised and, and seeing not only the teachings of, of those people who got the answers wrong, but then also understanding the church's response to them, um, it can help us form our own understanding better of these great Christological issues and, and help us get to the heart of the great mystery that, that is Jesus Christ. Right? As we, we believe and teach in the Catechism today that you know, the church confesses Jesus is inseparably true God and true man. Right? I'm quoting from the Catechism now. He's truly the Son of God who, without ceasing to be God and Lord, became a man and our brother. Jesus Christ is true God and true man in the unity of his divine person. For this reason, he is the one and only mediator between God and men. Jesus Christ possesses two natures, one divine and the other human, not confused, but united in the one person of God's Son. Right? Christ, being true God and true man, has a human intellect and will that is perfectly attuned and subject to his divine intellect and divine will, which he has in common with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Right? Did you realize that? That Jesus as man has a human will, and Jesus as God has a divine will. That Jesus as man has a, has a human intellect, but as God he has a divine intellect. And these things aren't in conflict, but they're, they're in union. They're in perfect union. Right? And just to finish quoting from the Catechism, the Incarnation is therefore the mystery of the wonderful union of the divine and human natures in the one person of the Word. So uh, let's enter into this mystery. Let's enter into the mystery of the union of Jesus, fully man, fully God, full human nature, full divine nature, but united in one person, the Logos, the Word, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity. May God bless you this week. When we come back next week, we'll talk about uh, another great heresy of iconoclasm, um, which affected uh, mainly the eastern part of, of the church. Um, and uh, we'll kind of wrap up um, our, our tour of the first thousand years of, of church history. And then uh, the week following, we'll, we'll start looking at some of the great medieval heresies, um, which affected the western part of, of the church, uh, and, and have a little bit of fun uh, uh, doing that. Uh, they're historically very interesting. So, hope you have a wonderful week. Um, pray for me. I'll be praying for you, and God bless. <music>